All right, uh, let's pass out the scriptures if you would. These fine folks have scriptures for you. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. They'll give it to you. We're going to be in John chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. <laughs> John chapter 2. And uh, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. I love that. I just, I keep her, if I'd ever said that to my mother, I would be picking up my teeth with my broken arm. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Great advice. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. These were washing pots. It was dishwater. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, and you've kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. And the text goes on that uh, Jesus cleansed the temple, and he also was a discerner of hearts. And we'll cover that, but let's pray and ask God's blessing. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd lead us into all truth, and as we take a look at this very first miracle of you, Lord Jesus, that you would reflect to us what it is that we as a nation and as a people are called to understand I pray, God, that you would empower us and prepare us for the storms ahead, and that, God, we would be used to affect this culture in a profound and powerful way, not to sit behind the walls of the church and complain about the culture, but to engage the culture. Lord, I I rejoice that you were at a wedding, that you made wine. Lord, I, I ask that you would minister and touch us and speak to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask now, as our hearts are prepared to receive, that you would Lead us into all truth, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat. So uh, Joe and the worship team was at an event called the American Renewal Project, uh, where they invite pastors uh, in key battleground states in the country to engage the culture, um, emphasizing Judeo-Christian values, and to, to uh, be active in that process. And I've been to a number of the American Renewal Projects. I've had the privilege to speak at a number of them. Um, they're probably the most amazing ministry in America today as far as I'm concerned. Joe came back, it was his first one, he was thrilled about it. I couldn't make it because my anniversary was April 21st and we've been married 25 years. <laughs> you, better, you better clap for that. And uh, I was asked by Assemblywoman Shannon Grove to uh, come up to Sacramento to sit in a meeting with her. Um, and it was all as a result of what had happened at the California Republican Party convention when the log cabin Republicans, the homosexual 
portion of the Republican Party wanted to be recognized as uh, a club. And there was contention, and Shannon stood in opposition, and she was one-seventh, uh, one uh, seven times as many people stood in favor, and Shannon and a small group stood in opposition. And um, some of the log cabin Republicans came back to talk to me, and um, I, I engaged with them and had a conversation. And they said, would you meet with us later? I said, sure. Well, Shannon uh, connected with John Masella, who's the chairman of the Log Cabin Republicans, and she had a meeting scheduled for April 21st, my anniversary. So I said, honey, let's go to Sacramento, and then we'll go from there to Lake Tahoe, and we'll enjoy our anniversary, and we'll come back. And I had to be back in time for a pastor's conference for about, I think, 70 pastors of the black churches in California. I was the only white man there. Um, and, and we had a picture together, and I was... I, every, <laughs> And they, we were all laughing together, and I said, one of these things doesn't fit with the other, and they were all laughing. And, and um, what was fascinating is, is I, I'm, I'm, I'm loved and cared for when I'm with these, these men and women. And um, m- the majority of them are Democrats, and they know me to be a, a Republican. And as many of you have had the privilege to hear Bishop Broderick Huggins speak, a uh, lifelong Democrat, and... And he, he endorsed me in the campaign, and we've built this friendship together. So this was my week. I, I got up uh, to Sacramento, and I sat down with John Nacelle, another woman named Susan. Uh, she's the chairman of the San Diego chapter. Had a chance to meet with or speak with Matthew, who's the chairman of the Ventura chapter of Law Cabin Republicans. And I sat with him. And while the ARP was uh, preparing their event, and, and they were there, and were preparing for the 28th for this um, um, Supreme Court decision... I'm sitting across from, quote-unquote, conservative homosexuals in the Republican Party. And I said to them, um, my sister is a lesbian. Um, this is an issue that our country's facing. My family's intimately involved with the struggles of the nation as a whole in a microcosmic matter, uh, manner. And uh, I said, I, I, don't, I, I don't know that this battle, and I think on the 28th, and this isn't a lack of faith on my part. Uh, I, we have not because we ask not. I'll ask the Lord. But uh, the nation, it seems like one ruling after another is going towards this, this world of, of, of uh, same-sex marriage. And I sat with him and I said, my greatest concern is, is um, not so much same-sex marriage, though I stand in opposition to it. I won't officiate one. Um, I've been asked by my sister and it, it affected our, our relationship for eight months. She didn't speak to me. We've reconciled since in that... Um, she, she came to understand my position and is one of my strongest supporters. But I said, my greatest concern is an issue of religious liberty. Um, and I said, it doesn't have to pertain to Christianity. I said, there's a, a case currently where a Muslim barber, uh, by his religious views, was, was his religious convictions is that he's not allowed to touch the hair of another woman other than his wife. He's not allowed to touch any other woman's hair. And as a barber, he had an all-men's barber shop. A woman went in and demanded that he cut her hair. And he refused. She sued, won, and that barbershop shut down. Um, we've, we've heard the story of bakers and florists that refused to um, participate in providing services for same-sex marriages because it, it, it is contrary to their religious convictions. In a free market society, they've now been sued and some of them are losing their businesses. And as I said to these folks, I said, this isn't an issue over... Uh, same-sex marriage this is an issue of religious liberty. And if we take away the First Amendment, 
all of Americans lose, including yourself. And I looked at them and I said, this argument isn't being held in the 1040 window. That's longitude and latitude where 95% of the Muslim world exists. And I told this to my sister too. I said, there aren't any homosexuals in that realm. If there are, they're very secretive because they're, they'd be killed. I said, through this religious liberty, you have the ability to have these the, the, these freedoms, these rights to engage in, in what you engage in. I may disagree with you as I disagree with the Muslim, but I recognize your right to have that view. And in a free market society, you have to also recognize the rights of others to hold to those convictions. Do you stand with that? And they said, yes. I said, I think a greater travesty upon the nation is, is the abortion issue. And, and I, I shared with them, I said, in China, they have just taken an embryo and, and they've done DNA modification on the embryo to take away a rare blood disease. Now, you guys have heard this, maybe you were following in the news. I said, let's say, if it hasn't already happened or let's say it does happen, that they find the, the quote unquote uh, gay gene that, that gives someone a predisposition to a homosexual life. And now you can do sex selective abortions, whether it's for female or male, or you can do it for a blood disease or however. Do you think that the homosexual community is in danger of sex-selective abortions? You could hear a pin drop. I said, if we don't stand together, we're going to fall apart. And what, what happened there is an engagement in the culture where they moved to the right even further, meaning that they understood the value of life. I've come that they might have life and life more abundant. Then I went and I met with the black pastors very liberal in their views in some respects and social issues. But Proposition 8 passed in the state of California because of the black churches. Just take a look at it. And, and the Mormon church. And by the way, I was with Mormons yesterday. I figured give you an eclectic service. I've had an eclectic week. And, and here these, these pastors are adamantly opposed to same-sex marriage because they see their struggle for civil rights and the, and the, and the, the push for same-sex marriage, a declaration of civil rights, they find that offensive. And so here, and, and then why, why is, is not the conservative movement reaching out to these black pastors? Well, because they vote 80% or 90% of the time democratic. Where's the idea of building and influencing culture? Some of you are saying, what were you doing talking to log cabin Republicans? I'll tell you what I was doing. I was being a Christian. You know, it's so easy to sit behind the walls of the church and throw bombs over the wall and, and decry what you don't like instead of engaging, starting to realize people have hearts and families and brokenness and concerns. And, and, and the same folks would say, what are you doing with a room full of Democrats? It's amazing how when you're sitting in an inner tube on a lake and a motorboat goes by that you decry the speed in which one is traveling because it's, it's affected your tranquility. I hope it shakes you up a little bit. We should all be doing this. Engaging the culture, getting an understanding. The Bible says gain understanding, gain wisdom. And so as I sat, I don't know what's going on, but as I sat with them, uh, I shared with them the position of the log cabin Republicans view on abortion. And I said, did you know that Margaret Sanger started Planned Parenthood and she was a eugenicist and her desire was to do away with the, the other races? 
Do you know that there's a disproportionately high percentage of abortions to the black community? They're the ones that are being 8% of the nation, and yet they have the highest number of abortions. Your children are being killed. It was shocking to them. And, and as we just engage the culture and have an understanding and have, be prepared to give an, in, a, 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 an answer in season and out of season, one of the reasons why we can't give an, a, an answer in season and out of season is because we haven't studied to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen and women who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I don't do politics. We all do politics. It's called convictions of what we desire. And in the, in the abdication of our responsibility in a community, somebody's going to fill that vacuum. And so as we're sitting here and we're watching this, and then the next day I, I was asked to go to, to USC uh, that, that the LDS were getting a chair in the religion department at USC. And, and it was a, a high honor and the president would be there and I was invited to go. And I came back from Bakersfield and I had been driving and I had gotten there late the night before and I was exhausted. I got back to Newbury Park to change my clothes and I just thought I'm gonna lay down for a little bit. I needed to go visit somebody who was sick and I just thought I'm gonna take a little nap. I woke up four hours later. I missed that. But early in the morning, I made it out for the serve day with the LDS churches. And they all stood in front and they said, there are three pillars to, to the LDS. And, and they listed them. They said, number one is religious freedom. And they went through the other two. And Dave Benson, who is the public affairs director for LDS, he said, Rob McCoy, I'm, I don't know what's going on, but Rob McCoy is that pillar for us in our district. And I want you to support him. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably going to get ostracized or attacked in some capacity within the church. And I said to a number of folks, in the election, I don't know what was worse. The voice of my enemies or the silence of my friends. And it's amazing how everyone can have an opinion, but no one does anything. And, and, and so when I see someone like Joe, he understands the need to infuse and affect and and. And, preserve, and, and strengthen a culture with the truth. Every one of the folks that I met with knows the positions on which I stand. But those come about after a relationship is established. I'll get to the text in a moment, but one more thing is I remember um, when I was in Crescent City, uh, California, and we had gone for a uh, family vacation up to Jedediah Smith Campground. And, and there I was, we had taken our old beat up Suburban and we had towed a tent trailer that we had rented and we get up there and the brakes coming down the mountain, they're squeaking and it's bad. And so I, I set up the campsite, leave the kids there with my wife and uh, I, I drive into town uh, to go get the brakes done. I don't have any transportation back so I have to sit in the waiting room, my Suburban goes up on the blocks and then all of a sudden I watch this Geo Metro go up on the blocks in front of my Suburban. And then I see the owner of that, it's this lady and and um, we're both sitting in the waiting room for our cars. I thought, well, let's engage the culture. I said, um, are, are you from the area? She says, I moved here a few years ago. Oh, yeah, I'm, she said, I moved from Modesto. Oh, Modesto, I've been there. It's a very conservative town. She says, oh, yes, I was a teacher, um, uh, very involved with the California Teachers Association. And it was, it's, the town was far too conservative for me. She said, I, they're just, that whole town is filled with right-wing evangelical fundamentalist people driving suburbans everywhere. And right away I'm like, hmm. And I said, well, well, what caused you to move here? It's such a unique area. And she says, well, I opened up a map 
and I saw a bunch of Indian heads on the map, and I knew those were Indian reservations, so I thought this was a very spiritual area, so I came here because I thought it would be spiritual. I said, well, how's that worked out? She goes, oh, there are a bunch of drunks. <laughs> she says, my family's imploded, and, and my daughter is on drugs, and the whole ha- family is, and, and these are some of the things, and I'm not, and she's laying them out, and, and I, I offered... You know, a servant speaks when they're spoken to, offers their opinion when they're asked. And I, I, I just threw a thought out there. And she says, well, that's fascinating. And she asked me some more questions and I, I gave her some more counsel. And, and she started asking me questions. Well, what would you do in this? Day? And I started giving her, she said, gosh, you're so wise. Thank you. And I'm sharing all these things. I'm not quoting scripture. I'm just laying them out there. Uh, I'm coming from a Christian worldview. I'm, I'm giving foundational principles. Our founding fathers understood natural law. Whether you were Catholic or Protestant or atheist, everyone's bound by gravity. And so we're dealing with natural law. I'm laying that out to her. She's touched. At one point, she's weeping. And then they say that her car's finished. And she says, I have to go. And I've so enjoyed this. You've really touched my heart. She says, I don't know anything about you as her car is lowering from the blocks. (laughs) And I said, well, my name's Rob McCoy. I'm a right-wing evangelical fundamentalist minister. (laughs) And that is my suburban. (laughs) (laughs) now what happened lives came together and were touched and somebody left with an understanding of how to live life under God here in this picture Jesus performs his first miracle a Jewish wedding would last seven days the text begins by saying on the third day Now, in a seven-day wedding, you were supposed to have the gift of hospitality and provide for your guests, and you had to have a lot stored up. And today, they say the average cost of a wedding is $30,000 in America. I just had one. I can testify to that. My daughter got married, and I got a cashectomy. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, the, the, the insight on the text is that basically Mary, in a sense, was a wedding coordinator. She was operating in the capacity of, of, of leadership in this wedding. And, and now both Jesus and his disciples, look at this, they were invited to the wedding. Everyone say invited to the wedding. And these disciples were the ones we met last week. You remember Nathaniel? He was under the fig tree and Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. Philip, when he said, follow me. Uh, to the others, he said, what do you seek? And we saw these disciples come. They had yet to give their heart to the Lord, but they began to follow him. They're all invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, when my mother would speak, I knew exactly what she said, even though what she was saying wasn't what she meant. (laughs) Anyone have a mother like that? (laughs) I do, I do, yes. (laughs) And Jesus said to her, and I love this response, and Jesus only uses this word woman twice. Once here and once when he was on the cross and he said, woman, speaking to Mary, behold your son, pointing to John. Son, behold your mother. He said to her, I am, he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? What he's doing is he's transitioning Mary from a relationship in, in, in a sense of, of uh, mother-son to a relationship of, of believer and savior. You're coming to me as a mother to a son, but I'm going to transition you to a believer and a savior. If you're asking me to perform something 
in, in, in the concept or the context of the Savior, we have to reverse roles here. I'm not going to be your son. I'm going uh, to operate in the context of you being a believer. And, and he says, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Basically saying, I don't submit myself to do man's bidding. You don't tell me what to do. I'm God. There'll be only one time that my hour will come when I will submit myself to man, and that's when they're going to beat me beyond recognition. But that hasn't come yet. Now, if you're coming to me beseeching me as, as a servant seeking from the master, then we can have this conversation. And she understands that. She's not offended. She turns to the servants. Everyone say servants. She turns to the servants and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. Great counsel. Whatever he says to you, do it. I would just simply say, if you want to testify of Christ, you just tell anyone, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. That's a good way to live. And then for those of you going, well, this wasn't wine. It was wine. It, it, it clearly was wine. Methusosin means well drunk, which means intoxicated. Oonysis, oinosis is wine, and then tonkalan is good wine. And, and people would try to justify, well, this is, this is grape juice. It was six months after the harvest. Grape juice doesn't keep for six months after the harvest. This is fermented wine. There's the poor wine, which is diluted, and there's the strong wine, which is, you know, Opus One or Robert Mondavi. This is good stuff. Now, there was set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purifications of the Jews. So these, these water pots, holding 20 to 30 gallons of water each, were, were meant for ceremonial washing. They're washing pots. And, and uh, there were six of them. And they contained 20 to, to 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Let me repeat his command. Fill the water pots with water. So that means they have to go over to the well. The well holds a, about five gallons maybe. And they pull the bucket up. They bring the bucket over. They pour it in. They walk back over to the well. They drop it down. They bring it up. They walk over. They pour it in. They go back. They drop it down. They pick it up. They Long walk, long walk. Six of them, 30 gallons. Five, 10, 15, 20. Five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. Five, 10, 15, 20. A lot of work. And if he said, all he said was, fill the water pots with water. But look what the servants did. They filled them to the brim. Whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. Do it well. They filled it to the brim. Whatever he says to you, do it. And they said, oh, we'll do it. We want to do the best we can do. And that's what they did. They filled it to the brim. He didn't say fill it to the brim. He said fill it. They filled it to the brim. He said to them, draw some of it out now and take it to the master of the feast. And this is where the faith comes. It wasn't Mary, it wasn't the disciples, servants. We don't even know their names. These, to me, are this, the secrets of this text. These guys fill it up, and they took it. They took, they took this, this uh, pitcher, they drew some out, they put it in the pitcher, and they bring it to the master of the feast. They're like, here you go. And it's in the wine pitcher. They've got, they've got dish water, and they're taking it to the master of the feast, and they're like... We're out of wine. Here you go. <laughs> We're going to get beaten. <laughs> but they took it. Why did they take it? Because somebody shared with them, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And they did it. 
When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. They didn't go to Jesus and say, you did this. They went to the bridegroom, gave him the credit. The servants were the ones who made it happen. Jesus was the one who created the miracle. The servants were the ones who, who applied it, and the bridegroom gets the credit. And so with this picture, the good wine comes out. Usually what they do is they would, they would serve, you know, the, the, it says every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. Usually they'd set out the Opus One or the Robert Mondavi, and then after everyone was a little bit tipsy, they'd bring out the Boone's Farm or the Thunderbird. Some of you going, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do. It's never touched my lips. I've never had anything like that, ever. You know what they call Nyquil in the Baptist church? Baptist whiskey. I don't drink, but I get the Costco-sized bottles of Nyquil every winter. Just showing it out there. But, but what they're saying is, you, you, you've brought the good wine out now. This is fascinating. And then it just goes on to simply say, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother, his brothers, his disciples. They didn't stay there many days. Later, Jesus cleanses a temple and, uh, in, in the chapter. We'll cover that in another time. But one thing in, in the chapter, I love this. Verse 23 of the same chapter, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Miracles don't save people. You may have heard what happened with Scott Berman, and you're going to try to dismiss it, or you're going to say, well, unless God does that for me, or maybe uh, you'll have no explanation for it, but you'll come up with some fanciful explanation. Miracles don't save people. Jesus never had to prove himself to people. He healed because he wanted to heal. He didn't heal so he'd have a testimony. And when people start to believe because he can turn water into wine, or he has the ability to take a few loaves and fishes and feed thousands, it, that doesn't save people. If you're waiting for a sign and you're waiting for a miracle... The reality is, here's the miracle. Your heart's beating, your lungs are moving, you're being held on the earth as it's spinning around at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour, being led through a galaxy. It's just ridiculous. Sun's rising, sun's setting. You're watching the birth of a child. Miracles are all around you. You're held in a delicate balance, and, and none of this impresses you. And Jesus knew that they're fair-weather friends. If you can win somebody with a miracle, you can, win, you can lose somebody with deceit. If you can pressure someone into the kingdom, the enemy can pressure somebody out of the kingdom. Jesus didn't try to push Philip or Nathaniel or, or, or Andrew or Peter or any of them into the kingdom. He just said, follow me. Check this out. See if this adds up. And what was he doing? He's at a wedding. What is he doing? He's making wine. His mother's working at the wedding. We don't know anything about the wedding. We know it's a Jewish wedding. It's the third day of a seven-day feast. We don't know if they're believers. We don't know if it's an arranged marriage. We don't know anything about it. All I know is Jesus is there. And I think the application very clear to me in regards to this is that if you want to have a successful wedding or a successful marriage, I, I love the portion of scripture that we read in verse two. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. If you want a successful wedding and a successful marriage, I'll tell you what, Jesus should be number one on your guest list. That's the single greatest thing to ensure 
the success of a marriage is to invite Jesus. And guess what? If you're a believer here this morning, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God resides in you. I get people asking me all the time, Pastor, should I go to the wedding because it's two non-believers getting? Yes, you bet. I have no idea what the context of this wedding was, but you, by all means, go to that wedding. If you were invited, you go. As a minister, will you officiate a wedding between a believer and a non-believer? Yes, I will. And, you can, and if you don't like that, there's other churches. I don't want to want you to leave, but I understand. You go, well, how can you do that? The Bible says you can't be unequally yoked. They're going to go to the justice of the peace. I'm going to sit with them and take them through premarital counseling. I'm going to tell them that this seat belongs to them after the wedding is completed. And when you have your struggles, come. I will lead them to the Lord. I will, I will present Christ to them. I will love on them. I've been invited and I'm going to go. And ultimately, they'll have Christ in their life. Joe Salant never heard at 17 years of age because nobody took time to testify because he was, he was writing prescription drugs. Christians don't hang around with people like that and tattoos down their arms. Yes, they do. You know, it says in Matthew chapter 11, for those of you who think that this is way beyond Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and the connotation is drinking wine and they say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by our children. As Christians, we love to define who we are by what we don't do. And somehow that makes us superior. Why can't we be defined by what we do and the lives we touch? We're so offensive that nobody wants to be around us. Jesus was invited to the wedding. You know why? Because he was probably a lot of fun to be around. People like having me at a wedding. Now that doesn't mean <laughs> that doesn't mean that we compromise our lives. I have the foundation of Christ. All things are permissible, not all things are profitable. I have a foundation. I have a line that's tethered to that foundation, and I can go into all the world to make disciples of all men. If I'm welcome and invited, I will go. If I'm welcomed and I'm invited, I will go. You won't define me by what I won't do. If Christ is invited, he will come. And the beauty of it is, could you have imagined if somebody had responded to the kid with tattoos? There wouldn't have been prison in, that, in, in Joe's life. There would have been an absolute transformation. The same mind that was in him would still be there. He wouldn't have had to go through all the heartache. Yes, God restored it and it used all things together for good. But each of us has this opportunity to play a role. I, I, was, I was thinking the other thing is, Jesus loves to bless weddings and marriages. He loves to. And, and I want to go in and I want to present Christ. You know, the times that I've done weddings with a believer and a non-believer, it's always come to fruition in the long, long haul. Always. In one case, I remember the worst case scenario, the, the couple divorced. 
But the, the wife who wasn't a believer and the husband who was, the husband was a, a, just an idiot. And the wife came back so touched that she's walking with the Lord today. I, I look at this other thing too. Jesus makes any situation that he steps into better and better. The world operates like this. They give you the good stuff up front and then they give you the alpo on the back. They engage you with bells and whistles and tell you how wonderful it's going to be and the next thing you know, your body is riddled with misery and you have gone through the ringer and nobody calls you. But when you give your heart to the Lord, when Jesus shows up, the best comes and then it gets better. And, And the misery turns into blessing. When God stepped into Joe's life, all the tats and all the prison time and all the d- dysfunction and all the misery and all the heartache and, and, and all of it, he, God just said from better to better to better. And he's up in front of you now and you're moved. You're moved by a man who was in prison. You're moved by a man who ran guns. You're moved by an Aryan race white guy. You're moved by a guy that did a prescription drug ring. You're moved by that because God makes it better, better, better. That's how it works. In, in Christendom, we just get in this cocoon. And God is saying, no, I have called you into the world. Go into all the world. Go, therefore. Make a difference. Pull down strongholds. Sit in a, in a garage with a woman from Modesto. Sit with the log cabin Republicans. Go to the black church. Dig a tree with a Mormon. Join the Kiwanis. Bring Christ to the, if you're invited, go. Don't sit back and go, I don't do that. I don't hang around with people like that. If I were them, I'd go, you know what? I don't want to hang around with people like you. You're not invited. We've made ourselves so, I don't even know the word, that nobody wants us at their party. And, and, and you're going to be insulted you're going to be insulted, I guarantee you. I sat next to Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright at an event. Some of you are like, oh my goodness. And the man who introduced him insulted me in every way, shape, and form. Again, I was the only white guy in the dais. I was the only white guy there. That man who introduced Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright, everything he attacked defined me. And guess who wasn't insulted? Me. Because you can't insult a dead man. I have been crucified with Christ. You ever walked up to a corpse and go, stupid right-wing evangelical fundamentalist. And the, the, the corpse is like. I'm dead. Christ is alive. He was a lamb silent to the slaughter. I'm there. It doesn't offend me. And then ultimately, The Bible says that a a gentle answer turns away wrath. A a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. And then you get that opportunity and they ask you and you share and they're touched. A gift opens up the way for the giver. I I remember driving to my sister's birthday party and my my wife and I were out of money and it was a a room full of of homosexuals in in the Bay Area at Buca de Beppo's. And I, and I, and I, I, I drove there we were out of money. We had no food. We took what we had to put into the gas tank. We knew that the whole budget was shot for the week and we'd have to pay for parking when we got there. We were broke. Our car had 280,000 miles on it, barely made it there. 
And I walked in, and when she saw my face, she began to weep. Because everyone who was around her was a, a business colleague or, or some coworker. I was family. And she invited me, and I came. You know, I, I think on the 28th when we gather for prayer, I pray that the body of Christ's heart is broken. We've come to this place because we haven't engaged the culture. The world has engaged the culture and they're winning. And we, we want to isolate ourselves and not engage. We want to define them as enemies. I don't look at them as enemies. I look at them as opportunities. And I, I want us to be moved by that. This, I, you know why I'm, I'm, I'm vehemently fighting for religious liberty? is because if it's taken away, then all Americans are gonna suffer. I have been able to share that with those who are in opposition to my political views and my religious views. And they understand the value of that. But you have to be prepared to engage that. I close with this because we're out of time. This is out of John 15. Remember when I asked you to repeat the word servant? I think the servants are the secret to the text. John 15, starting with verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you what? That you what? Together, that you what? Stop for a moment. So you will be my disciples when you bear much fruit. What does he mean fruit? I will read. Don't turn there. Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. Peace. Long-suffering. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Jesus goes on to say, verse 9 of John 15, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may remain in you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? He died for us. When? When were we yet sinners? Greater love has no one than this and to lay down one's life for his friends. Friends, pay attention. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What did Mary say to the servants? Whatever he tells you to do what? No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have commanded, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear that same fruit, and that that fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in my name, the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I have commanded you that you love one another. How do you go from being a servant to a friend? You obey the Lord, what has he commanded you? That you love one another. 
that your joy may be full. Who do you love? Well, you'd love the people that Jesus loved, people like you and me. We weren't a catch. I love when Joe said that. Huh. I gave God my life. That's like the thief on the cross saying, Lord, I give you my life. He had about 20 minutes remaining. You're no catch and neither am I. You've been saved to serve. And you serve with love and gentleness and patience and long-suffering and kindness. And when you're doing that, you ask anything from my Father in my name and it will be given unto you. When we gather on the 28th for prayer, may our hearts be broken. May we cry out for the condition of this nation and say, God, would you fill me and use me that I would no longer be a servant but a friend? God, I want to do what you command me to do. I want to love like you love. Help me, God. You care about marriage? Because marriage is a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. And the only way the world's going to see that is that when we start living like we love the Lord, we're already married. We're married to him. Let the world see what that's like. As we abide in him, that fruit will be made manifest. The world will see in us self-control. They're going to see in us lives that will touch them. And they're going to come. And this is what my sister Gretchen said to me. And I close with this. My sister Gretchen said to me, Rob, I'm going to go to Israel with Nancy, my other sister, who's an evangelical Catholic. Some of you go, Catholic. Man, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> she said, Rob, I'm going to go to Israel with Nancy. I've been praying for my sister probably over 25 years. Over 30 years, I've been praying for Nancy. Or excuse me, for Gretchen. She said, I'm going to go. She said, I, I just think that this is a season in my life where I need to spiritually get aligned. She said, can you imagine a lesbian going with a Catholic church group? I said, you bet I can, Gretch. I'm proud of you. She asked me for advice. I said, go. Go. You know what's moved her? In 25 years, 30 years, you know what's moved her? The Bible says wisdom is proven by her children. She looks at my kids. She looks at my wife. She looks at the punk that she grew up with as a little brother. <laughs> Only God could do that. <laughs> and if God could do it for me, why can't he do it for her? Yes. He's given me a love for my sister. And I could have been offended. She's offended me countless times, but you can't offend a dead man. Quit being so prideful and get out there and start loving on people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. Bless your people, we ask, in accordance with the riches of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hope to see you on the 28th. God bless you guys. <laughs>